Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Rene Vangestein, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we look at reports that Alibaba plans to spin off its international e-commerce businesses and list them overseas. And we'll also look at another great made-in-China business story involving a dust-up between new energy car maker Neo and a rogue blogger. We'll start with Alibaba, which many people might recall made headlines last month when it announced plans to break itself up into six discrete business units. One of those is the company's overseas e-commerce business, which mostly consists of its AliExpress and Lazada services. The former connects Chinese sellers with buyers in markets around the world, well, Lazada is a site focused on Southeast Asia. The latest reports say Alibaba is now weighing a plan to separately list this particular unit, though no specifics were given. So, Renee, why are we seeing this kind of report about a separate IPO just for the international e-commerce business and not some of the others, like Alibaba's cloud service that's also set for a spinoff? Well, first of all, the very different businesses um, in terms of investor appeal, obviously, but also if you think about uh, regulation, the uh, desire of the Chinese government to, to keep some very specific businesses very close to its best, the two are just totally different. Hmm. Why is the news now? Well, uh, this as far as I know, is not uh, news coming straight out of the company. Right. It's it's news that are basically rumors to some extent or planted on purpose somewhere. You know, I wouldn't read too much in, in, into the fact that this one may be the first one to go of all the uh, baby baba, if you want to call them that way. <laughs> there we go. I wouldn't read anything particular uh, into that. It is obviously, if you think about getting the approval for an overseas listing, you would think that AliExpress and Lazada combined as a company, probably, legal entity, holding company likely, would find it easier to get approval for an overall uh, an overseas listing because it obviously does not cover Chinese as users. So there's no sensitivity there, or shouldn't be any sensitivity in terms of you know, personal data that uh, would uh, be for, you know, Chinese citizens. So I would expect that mm -hmm. this would get, um, you know, pretty smooth sailing through the regulatory approval process. And maybe that in it, then by itself makes it a, um, you know, a company that, uh, a unit that would get to market faster than any other unit, especially if you think about the cloud business and so on, which is a lot more information that is extremely sensitive. Right, right. The other ones are all domestic. This is really the only international piece. Right. Well, well how about uh, if we look at this one too? I, I mean, one thing that I noticed was you know, we see a lot of foreign governments uh, making, you know, expressing concerns about uh, Chinese access to sensitive foreign data. Um, you know, AliExpress especially has uh, services in, in some Western markets. And then Lazada, you know, is all over Southeast Asia, which I know those countries are smaller. But 
they can't be too excited about having uh you know all of their citizens information accessible by Beijing. I mean, do you think that this kind of a listing could somehow help to ease any of the concerns? I guess specifically, you know, setting this company up as a an independent company and perhaps even, you know, a company that's based outside of China, maybe maybe quite possibly based out of China. Would that you know, start to address uh, some of these data security concerns outside of China? Um, possibly, but I, I think that the more fundamental uh, issue, though, remains uh, not where the company is located, incorporated, or headquartered. It's where does the data actually reside? Is it on servers that are outside China? Or is it on servers that are in China, even if it's AliExpress and Lazada? Hmm. You know, where is the data? I have no idea where today uh, the data related to the users of, of both services uh, are actually kept. It's, um, I mean, the move to potentially headquarter it outside of China well, I would assume Lazada is already headquartered outside China anyhow, but is, uh, you know, somewhat similar to what uh, Pindodo is, is doing right now. And you may have uh, seen the news about Pindodo relocating its headquarters to Ireland. Oh, yeah, right. And obviously that has a lot to do with the growing success, pretty fast, actually, growing success of Temu, which is uh, their international app. Uh, which is focusing on the U.S. and and Europe, but has been growing, you know, pretty fast and and quite successfully in the U.S. So there also, I think that the drive is not just, you know, moving headquarters. It's also obviously keeping uh, the data on servers outside of China. Right. I think both of us are probably treading on unfamiliar ground here, but at least if they had the uh, company headquartered outside of China, you know, give them greater justification, I guess, for, you know, basing all the the data outside of China, too. I, I don't know if China has rules about, you know, if the company's based in China, it has to locate its stuff here. So, you know, it would at least give them more of a justification for you know, moving all that data outside of China. Right. Okay. Well, next, let's look at the, uh, a more fun story, a less technical story. Um, uh, I like to call this a, a great made-in-China business story, and we actually wrote about it on Bamboo Works. It, it all began when a blogger posted a video accusing new energy car maker Neo of discriminating against Chinese consumers and this was because it was charging them more than their European counterparts for the theoretically the same cars. But uh, Neo is saying in its lawsuit that the accounting was flawed and largely an apples to oranges comparison designed to harm its reputation. So like I said, uh, Neo sued this blogger and it's also heavily implying he may have had ulterior motives for publishing the video. So. We can't really comment on the veracity of Neo's accusations, which seem to be saying the blogger was paid by somebody to smear Neo's name. If that turns out to be true, it certainly wouldn't be the first time something like this has happened. Can you comment a little bit on, on how common this kind of thing happens, you know, where you have sort of like a, a company goes and, and pays a media or 
you know, pays a blogger in this case to uh, badmouth its competitors? And, you know, would you call this a, a major business risk in China? Um, yeah, I mean, very clearly, uh, historically, uh, you know, this is nothing new. I would say, uh, maybe a bit cynically, but this is nothing surprising. I've seen that many times before. But I was under the impression, though, without uh, actual uh, data to justify this, but uh, just overall observation, I was under the impression that this is, there are fewer cases these days than, than they used to be. Um, and you may remember that Alibaba was also attacked by some in-between commerce, I think, uh, reporters or writers prior to its IPO in the U.S. back in 2014, and kind of like blackmail uh, attempt. And Alibaba, because it's Alibaba, quickly went to the police and, and, and the authorities, and that came to a screeching halt very quickly. Uh, so nothing, nothing mm. new, really. I've seen worse than this. It used to be that uh, when Chinese companies were go were going to IPO in the U.S., some of their competitors would uh, start publishing news or getting news pub uh, published or push rumors or whatever to try and not necessarily derail the IPO, but to at least uh, in the hope that that would negatively impact the IPO price and therefore reduce the amount of capital that uh, that that specific company would be able to raise and when you're in a very competitive environment if if your competitors raise less capital or at a higher cost than you do then then you're somewhat coming ahead in the game so uh, i've seen that a lot mm. uh, there was a lot also in the share market historically I'm not close to that market these days, so I'm not sure what's going on there. But uh, yeah, I've seen this movie before many times. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. No, there've been been lots of cases, and and you know, there's even been cases. I think of uh, official media. I remember there was a big one in uh, Shanghai, uh, a famous website, a uh, 21st Century mm -hmm. Business Herald. Um, was was apparently blackmailing companies before their IPOs right. with threats of writing negative stories about them. Well, as someone who advises people on this kind of risk, is there anything, you know, what what, what suggestions would you give to a, a company to do when it suspects someone's being paid to do this kind of thing? You know, our, our lawsuits, which is what Neo's turning to in this case, uh, a serious deterrent and, and you know, what else can a company do? Um, well, I mean, every case is obviously a bit different. I don't think that there's a general rule. But first of all, uh, the default reaction in, in China for Chinese companies that are attacked one way or another is always to either reserve the right to pursue legal action or to actually outright sue uh, the offending party. When you look at the track record of uh, the courts in China and how long it takes to actually, uh, if you sue somebody, especially on the commercial side, uh, before you get a resolution of the case, it takes a long, long, long time. So I don't think that NEO is you know, necessarily expecting that there's going to be swift action here that is going to silence that blogger. 
but it's it's part of you know scary tactics, I guess, to some extent. And uh, they know who the blogger is. I don't know who the blogger is, so maybe they feel that going this way is is going to bring this to an end very quickly. Uh, this being said, beyond this, though, uh, which once again, I think it's going to take a long, long time to get anywhere, is, you know, you have to deal with the immediate consequences of, of uh, what is happening. And uh, the, best, uh, the best strategy, really, as always, is, is to be, number one, fully transparent. Number two, to have a very clear, easy for everybody to understand rebuttal with uh you know convincing arguments as to why this is not the case or if it is the case why it may make perfect commercial business sense in the short term to actually practice price differential this is a classic case of maybe if it is true of a company uh, getting into a new market and uh, obviously needing to establish a presence, uh, start building market share. And uh, it is not unusual for companies in situations like that to resort to price differential and, uh, and accept temporarily lower profits in the name of building up market share in, in a new market. So I don't know, I haven't seen numbers or anything, but uh, if that is the case, um, there's really nothing wrong as far as I'm personally concerned with that approach. Now, then you start looking at uh, anti-dumping issues and so on, and, and whether, if once again, if that is the case, whether they're selling in the European market at a loss or not, and so on. So it, it's not possible, really to make a very definite judgment on this unless, you know, we, we have all the facts. And clearly, uh, the company should do. The company should come out with all the facts, lay out a very convincing story, which is either that is not true and this is why it is not true, or it is true, but this is why we are doing it. And uh, we're doing it for commercial reasons, for business reasons. We expect it to be a short-term development and eventually everything will fall back in place and pricing will be subject to foreign exchange fluctuations, obviously local taxes and so on. Prices uh, will be in balance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, they actually did give out, a, I, I didn't mention it, but they, they gave out some explanation. They said, I, I think the, one of the main factors was uh, that the Chinese vehicles included mm. batteries and the the ones that were being sold in Norway or it was somewhere in Scandinavia uh, didn't include batteries. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, that makes perfect sense as an explanation. Now, I don't know why you would sell an EV uh, without battery, but uh, maybe there's a good <laughs> reason for that too. <laughs> Maybe they just want to knock the make the price look lower, and then uh, you gotta. Oh, by the way, if you want to buy some battery, or if you want to actually drive this vehicle, you're gonna have to pay a little extra for some right. batteries. Interesting strategy. Yeah, I don't want to call it bait and switch, but uh, you know, it's like the the practice of hotels giving you a rock bottom price, and then when you finally go to the checkout counter, uh, they add in about ten other fees, and it's twenty or thirty percent yep. more. Anyhow. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening this week. Uh, we'll wrap things up here. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of China Inc., when we'll look once more at the latest trending China business topics. Hope to see you all then. Goodbye for now. Thank you all.